Welcome to I'm Fine, You, brought to you by Maybelline New York, where we are normalizing the conversation around anxiety, depression, and mental health. Now here's your host, Chrissy Rutherford. Hello, and welcome to I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline New York. Maybelline's Brave Together initiative is dedicated to breaking the stigma around anxiety and depression while addressing challenges and providing resources to those in need. Hi, I'm Christy Rutherford, and on this podcast, we're channeling this mission into real-life conversations to help normalize talking about our mental health and provide tangible resources and guidance to anyone who might be struggling or who knows someone that is. Today, I'm so happy to be joined by social media's favorite psychiatrist, none other than Dr. Judith Joseph. With over 1 million followers on social media, Dr. Judith is a multifaceted, board-certified psychiatrist, researcher, media consultant, and award-winning content creator. Whether she's creating videos about mental health topics like high-functioning depression, ADHD, and trauma, conducting scientific research with her team, or working directly with her patients, Dr. Judith has devoted her life to using her expertise and knowledge as a mental health clinician and researcher to help as many people as possible. I'm so glad that she is here with me now to talk all about the exciting work she does and so much more. Welcome, Dr. Judith. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So most of us learn how to approach, or sometimes I would say in my case, avoid the topic of mental health in our homes with our families. You had a religious upbringing. Your father was a pastor, right? That's right. How did your family talk about mental health growing up? Yeah, it's interesting because I come from a Caribbean household. I was born in Trinidad. Oh my God, (laughs) my parents are Jamaican. Okay, so... You know, (laughs) which is why I said avoid talking about mental health. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's not so much avoiding it, it's talking about it in a different way from a different perspective. Yeah. And I think, especially in my case, religion was heavily used to, and spirituality used to explain things that now I know were related to mental health issues. Yeah. And so I think that a lot of the stigma around mental health is because people didn't necessarily have an understanding. And also because admitting that this was happening was somehow exposing a failure in you in some way. Right. And so growing up, that's how we talked about mental health issues. It was it was in the form of either a spiritual possession or maybe someone right. did something bad in their lives. Mm-hmm. I did a a skit on IG about this, about how like, you know, in some parts of my family, people would say, oh, so-and-so had a curse put on them. They did something, you know, like... And so that was the explanation. Very superstitious cultures. Very much so. And also it's rooted in slavery and, you know, the history of colonization. So, you know, a way for a lot of slaves to hold on to their heritage was to use religion to mask their own deities. So they would name a saint after one of their own gods or goddesses, you know, right? Mm -hmm. and that was a way for them to you know, fool the slave master into holding on to their culture. Right. Because at the time, slave masters knew that if you ripped culture away from people, then you ripped their connectivity. And if they're connected, they can escape. They have a better chance. So I want to honor my heritage. And 
I know that out of resilience, they use a lot of things to explain mental health issues. At the same time today, we know more. So we have a responsibility to get the right treatment and to also reduce stigma. Yeah. And I'm sure also the conversation now that you are also a medical professional, that the conversation around mental health with your family has changed so much. I would love to hear what got you interested to pursue this as a career and and what was that like discussing it with your family? So Chrissy, I was in a very, very traditional Caribbean home where education was super valued. Yep. And I was the first doctor in my family. So you know, oh, as the they first must have been doctor, so proud, <laughs> proud and also pressure, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I do a lot of skits on first generation people. And so the yeah. burden that we have to perform, to never mess up, to be perfect. Yeah. And how that breeds anxiety, right? Yep, so, yep, yep. You're speaking <laughs> straight to my soul right now. And so when I told my parents I wanted to be a doctor, I was always fascinated with the brain. And I love neuroscience. I thought I was going to be a neurosurgeon. I worked with a neurosurgeon wow. when I went to college at Duke, did research, went to Columbia, one of the best neurosurgery programs in the country. And then I ended up doing a surgical field anesthesiology, which was highly competitive, pays a lot of money, but just didn't feed my soul. So I found myself mm-hmm. in the operating room doing all these procedures, intubating people, putting in epidurals, and just not feeling wow. connected to my patients, you know? Yeah. So I had this moment where I thought, okay, I have a chance in my life to help myself to do what I want to do to pursue my passion or please others. And I took that risk and said, you know, one of my friends is doing psychiatry. She loves it. I did a rotation in South Africa when I was a medical student helping HIV positive orphans work through their trauma. And I love that. And I thought, what if I could do that every day? And I switched to psychiatry and my parents thought, are you crazy? (laughs) (laughs) You're the first doctor and you're going to go work with crazy people. So that took many years for my parents to really mm. come around and, and say, actually, you know, everyone has physical health and everyone has mental health. We prioritize our physical health. We don't all, you know, prioritize our mental health. Some of us don't even acknowledge it. Exactly. And so, so using that type of language and having lots and lots and lots of conversations over the years have led them to come around. (laughs) I love that. I know I started struggling with anxiety when I was in middle school. And, you know, I don't think my parents had ever really discussed mental health in a real way up until it was kind of, what do we do with her? You know, she's really struggling. And luckily they listened to my school and, you know, got me into therapy. They knew it was the right thing to do, of course, but I feel like it was very foreign to them. And I think as I've gotten older and I'm, I still go to therapy because I genuinely love it and it's been so helpful for me, you know, sometimes I'm like, you know, maybe you guys should try it too. And they're like, no, my mom's like, no, that, that won't work for me. She goes to church and prays. That's her therapy and walking. <laughs> well, prayer is really important. If you think yes. about, you know, talking to God, the yeah. way that you talk to a therapist, we all need to, you know, figure out a way to unload some of that angst. Yeah. And we all have a desire to feel heard. And so when I was speaking with my parents about this, I said, you know, in the way that you lead your congregation and you have people coming to you in your office hours to mm. talk about their problems. Yeah. You know, I was like, Daddy, you're actually the first therapist in our family, you know? Oh my God. That's <laughs> what an amazing connection. Absolutely. 
And I, you know, I, I tell my dad, I said, I used to, when you were, you know, counseling people, I would like sit outside and try to like listen because I just found it so honorable that he, out of his time, would meet with people who didn't have anything and would just listen. And the power of feeling heard is just so important. Yeah. You know, how many times has a client come to me and said, you know, my partner just doesn't listen. Right. I just don't feel heard. I don't feel validated. And when I reframe things that way, you know, you can pray, you can go on walks, and you can see someone who's trained in mental health care to help you with your specific needs because you deserve that. You know, you're worthy of that. Right. And so I think that, you know, using a bit of faith, a bit of what my parents, my family feels comfortable using and supplementing that with evidence-based treatment yes. uh, has allowed people to really accept mental health care and treatment. For sure. And I think even part of my own journey with therapy and with my parents was actually like also coming to accept who am I to knock my mother's methods for, you know, managing her own stress and whatnot. And, you know, I feel like a lot of kids have to go on that journey where you're like, you know what, you are who you are. And as long as you're not doing anything that is harmful to yourself, it's like, I'm going to let you have your way and I'm going to have my way. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I'm a psychiatrist, so I treat children, adults, and families with mm -hmm. a mixture of therapy and medication. Right. So when in a given day, I'll see, I could see a five-year-old and a 50-year-old, you know, or a six-year-old and a seven-year-old. So you see that people along their lives never stop developing. Yeah. The pediatrician may say, look for these landmarks, these milestones for children, but we need to do the same, you know, for the entire spectrum of a, a human life. Yeah. And what I found is that some families, I mean, you're fortunate in that your parents accepted it and they were willing to get you into treatment. Yes. But I see every day, a lot of times parents see their child's mental health struggles as a reflection of their parenting. I know. And they're not able to separate that and say, oh, so my child has depression and anxiety. And maybe it's not all related to me. You yeah. know, maybe there's something going on. Maybe it's biological. Maybe it's genetic. Maybe there's something at school. Yeah. But a lot of times parents think, okay, there must be something wrong with me. So they're resistant to the therapy and they don't get their child the help they need because they're not able to separate that. Yeah. And that's really hard. So, you know, as we're talking about how our parents and families shape our views, obviously our broader culture can also have a big impact on how mental health is approached. And I read that before you began practicing, you actually traveled to more than 30 countries. Wow, flex. Tell us a little bit about, you know, the insight that you gained from your travels and, you know, in your current research into the topic now, like when it comes to how you develop mental health treatments today. Well, so the traveling was a part of my passion. And I think, you know, coming from humble beginnings, I didn't have the money that a lot of kids grew up with. So I had to figure out a way to travel the world, right? Yep. So what I would do is in high school and college, I would apply for all these grants, anything, you name it. It could be a grant for an Italian-American football player. I'm going to apply for it. <laughs> but guess what? If the Italian-American football player doesn't apply, I'm going to get it. So in many cases, I was the only person that applied for these the monies that were out there. And I would ask specifically for a way to travel to countries to learn about healthcare systems, pediatrics, because I just felt that I wanted to see the way that the world operates. Because 
being in America, a lot of times you see a system that has a lot of resources or you see things one way. Mm-hmm. And so I traveled to South Africa several times and South America, and I got these grants, one from the government, a SAMHSA grant, when I was in residency to study cultural competency. And this was a part of training that was really dear to me because you know, I, I trained at Columbia, which is, it wasn't at the time very diverse. So, right. you know, you you talk with people about mental health issues and it's from one lens, you know, like this yeah. wealthy New Yorker who has issues, who's on, who has the ability to pay for three, four times a week sessions. Right. But what about the rest of us, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was really interested in learning about how these high level psychological concepts apply to us all. We all can understand and benefit from attachment theory. We all could benefit from learning about defense mechanisms. It's not too high level for someone who's not from a certain background. You know, if you explain it in a way and you allow room for growth and you educate everyone, these psychological themes apply to us all because we all have brains. We're all humans, you know? And so it was really important for me to be able to travel and to learn from other cultures what they were doing in terms of mental health. Now, it's interesting because my travels really stopped when I was supposed to go to a conference in Egypt and there was the Arab Spring happening the day that I land, landed and it was it was really quite traumatizing. And I'm a therapist and I didn't realize in, until my own therapy that I was traumatized by that because right. I looked at the correlation of my travel and I stopped traveling right after that. Mm. And I was like staying away from, you know, countries and really, you know, staying local. And I was like, oh, that right. impacted me, you know? So, yeah. but, you know, I've, st- I've recently started to travel again. But so the, the cultural competency really was important to me because there aren't a lot of providers of various backgrounds, but that doesn't mean that providers can't learn how to meet their patients, mm-hmm. how to understand their patients, how to validate their patients. So learning cultural competency is something that all providers can do, irrespective mm-hmm. of their backgrounds. Yeah. Wow, I love that. You know, because I, I feel like also, obviously, yes, the U.S. has so many resources, but still so many challenges around actually being able to serve people who are in need of mental health assistance. Yeah, I mean, never really think about how the rest of the world is also able to handle those same issues. Well, what I learned from my travels was that a lot of the healthcare is covered. So you you pay your taxes, the government covers the healthcare. Not all the healthcare is excellent or accessible. Right. Right. So you may be on a wait list to get a surgery. When I did my rotations throughout the Caribbean, uh, I saw that a lot, you know, especially in the rural areas, you really mm-hmm. had to wait to get a specialist. Yeah. So basic things like primary care, like vaccinations were covered. Yeah. But, you know, other things were not. And so there are different challenges around the world. But in a country like the United States, there are still challenges because there aren't enough providers. I read this fact uh, recently that in some rural areas, there's only one psychiatrist for like 50 miles or something like that, or one psychiatrist for 50,000 people. Oh my gosh. And if you think about it, if you need someone to prescribe and a primary care doctor isn't comfortable prescribing, then what are you going to do? You're going to wait. Yeah. You're going to wait for six months, you know, or you're going to have to drive to another state. So, you know, there just aren't enough doctors, there aren't enough therapists to meet the demand. And that's why I think social media has really taken off in terms of mental health content, 
people are hungry. They don't know where to turn. They don't have options. So social media has really filled part of that gap. Yes. And I'm so glad you brought that up because many listeners will know from your wildly popular social media account, you know, that you create a lot of really helpful and relatable content on your page. How did that all start for you? And what made you decide to make it such a big part of what you do? A couple of days ago, I was binge watching all of your videos <laughs> and I was just like, you were just like hitting the spot with all these <laughs> topics, like the parentified kids, the couple that drinks too much, like the parents fighting in front of the kids. I'm like, wow, none of us are having a unique experience. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole social media came out like about a year ago. I started really posting because, you know, like I mentioned, my my parents were in the church and they're evangelical. So my mindset has always been, okay, you can help one or you could help many, right? Mm -hmm. So like when I decided to go into my own psychiatry practice, I thought, okay, I could help patients one-to-one because I have a boutique practice where I still see patients for therapy and medication management. But I also have a lab where I have 10 women researchers and we develop in partnership with pharmaceutical companies, medications and devices and treatments for so you know, cool. Anything ranging from depression to anxiety to ADHD. We were just a part of that new drug that got FDA approved for postpartum depression. So we do great oh things. Oh my God. We do things so that help major. millions of people, right? So then I thought, okay, well, this is fun. This is great. But my patients are coming in. They were like, oh, I read this online and I read this and they were showing me these reels and this TikTok. And I was like, this is, this is not correct. You know, and there, <laughs> there's just a lot of creators who are trying their best to get the information out there, but sometimes it's just not accurate or, you know, they've had an experience and it's great. They're sharing their experience and they're, you know, breaking down stigma, but your experience is not representative of like everyone's, right? Yep. So there was a real need I felt for people who are, you know, that have that expertise to really enter this space. Now, doctors don't like to enter these spaces. They don't like to talk on the media. They're afraid of getting sued. They're afraid that someone will take what they say and then run with it and do something, you know, that they will regret. So, you know, when there aren't a lot of doctors on social media for that reason. Yeah. But I teach medical media at NYU and Columbia. So I know I knew how to do it in a way that was responsible. So I just, I started posting a year ago and then I got like 600,000 followers across TikTok and IG in like less than a year. So clearly it was a need, you know, I'm I'm like, can you give me tips? (laughs) I need some, (laughs) I need some social media tips from you. (laughs) Put <laughs> out myself content. <laughs> that's that's really really major. I also feel like actually my best friend is a therapist, and I also feel like there's a layer of kind of wanting to remain an anonymous in a sense, also because of the relationship that you have with your clients. And you obviously the content that you're making, it's not like you're giving away a lot of your personal life, but it does kind of create an interesting dynamic, right? Where you're like, oh, my doctor is famous on social media. (laughs) Yeah. So my patients that I've had in my private practice, I've had them for years. Yeah. And honestly, it's actually helped the relationship. I love because that. it's 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 brought in new content, you know, no pun intended. It's like, mm. oh, I saw this real and it reminded me that I wanted to talk to you about this. Right. And can you talk about this next? <laughs> I <laughs> love know? it. So, you know, that was my fear. And that's why a lot of psychiatrists fear getting on social media. They don't want 
to put too much out there, to make it feel as if, you know, your personality is so strong that you overshadow or overburden the session, but it's not a founded fear. And the best way to get over a fear is to face it and do it. And so even when I teach my doctors every year, these young doctors who are in training about, you know, the do's and the don'ts, I let them know that in the end, you are the expert. If you're not putting the information out there, guess what? Someone else who has zero expertise, who has never treated patients, who hasn't done the extensive 15 plus year training is going to do it. And they're going to take that space where you could do it and you could do it so much more ethically, responsibly, and also just have more of an impact, you know? And so that's my like rah, rah, let's do this kind of talk, but not everyone goes for it. I'll probably get one out of 10 doctors to say, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) I know. I mean, listen, it's like, you know, not everyone is made to be a social media star, no matter what your daytime profession is. But obviously there, yeah, there's huge benefits to it. But also I'd love to hear your thoughts on, because I think now there's been a bit of a backlash around like pop psychology, you know, because there is so much information and a lot of people are taking therapy terminology and are sort of misusing it or weaponizing it, even worse, weaponizing it against others. You know, I see this every day and there's nothing that will ever replace a patient therapist relationship. Nothing. I mean, I I went to medical school. I did adult psychiatry training. I did pediatric psychiatry training. I run a research lab. I'm still in therapy, you know? So like I am someone who knows so much about mental health, but I'm in therapy, right? What does that say about the benefit of having that patient therapist relationship? Mm-hmm. Nothing replaces it. And not to say that you can't grow using other forms. There are great self-help books. There are great parallel groups, podcasts, programs that can help you to grow. Not everyone has access to therapy. Some people are on a wait list to get a therapist. So yeah. there are other ways that you can grow, but there's nothing to replace a patient-therapist relationship, including social media. Yeah, I do think social media has opened the doors for so many people who didn't have access to this information. Yeah. You know, sometimes I get a a DM saying, oh my gosh, I saw this reel that you did and now I understand why I'm this way. But I won't say like, oh great. You know, I'll say, okay, that's the first step. You know, the first step is realization. Yeah. You know, and be very careful. I put very careful disclaimers. This may not apply to you. This does not represent all cases because I don't want to be in a situation where someone infer something and they don't get the right treatment because everyone deserves the right treatment. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of the therapy content on social media can be used as sort of a jumping off point or self-discovery, but we can't be using that solely to like heal ourselves, especially when there are so many other resources out there. You know, treat it the way you would your physical health. If you had asthma, right? And you decided to go on asthma support groups and learn everything on Instagram and TikTok about asthma, you would still go to your asthma doctor. You would still see your pulmonologist. You would still, you know, pick up your med- your inhalers. You still avoid allergies and dust and so forth. You do all the protective measures. So your brain is so precious. It's your, I think, your most precious organ. 
So why would you not do yourself that service? You know, why would you give yourself anything less than what you deserve? Protect your brain and get the right treatment with someone who's licensed. There you have it. I completely agree. I know I always say like, I can't wait for the day that mental health is valued in the same way that taking care of our physical health is valued. You know, even the way that we talk about it, it's so normal to be like, oh, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to, you know, get this workout in. But people are still shy to say like, I want to go to therapy or I am in therapy. And also sometimes people have really negative experiences with therapy. You know, I see this with my pediatric patients who are now adults. And sometimes they'll say, you know, my, my parent put me in a therapy. I didn't feel like the therapy was helpful. It put me on meds and I didn't think it was helpful. And so I had like a a negative perspective of how therapy is. So you want to validate that not everyone had a good experience, but you know, what I say in those cases is when you're looking for a therapist, if you don't feel heard, if you don't feel validated, if it doesn't click, you know, you know, give it some time. And if you, it's really not a good fit, try someone else, you know, yeah. it's a, it's a relationship, you know, Absolutely. when you start therapy, you're jumpstarting your development. You mm-hmm. are, you know, you may have like had something happen in your twenties and you just you couldn't get past that. And that therapy is going to jumpstart that development. If it's a good therapy, if it's not a good therapy, if it's not a good fit, it could further traumatize you. So, yeah. you know, just because you tried it once doesn't mean that you've, you can give up, you know, there's many forms of therapists. There's many types of therapists, Just, you know, try until you find the right one for you. Yes. Also, in addition to being a psychiatrist who works with patients, you mentioned earlier, you also lead a team of women who serve as clinical research coordinators and physicians. So amazing. What can you tell us about some of the pioneer work your team is doing? Well, you obviously mentioned that you worked on the postpartum pill, which we need to talk more about. Yeah. And, you know, exploring these like novel treatments for mental health conditions. So a lot of the treatments that I've worked on in my lab, some of them have gone to get approved and others haven't. You know, I I mentioned the one recently that was approved. I was one of many sites in the country that participated. And the interesting thing about research is that you don't know if someone's on a medicine or not. A lot of these studies are double-blind placebo-controlled, so a patient could be on placebo or not. Mm-hmm. And the goal is to see if this medicine is effective and safe in populations. But the research and having this background has led me to my own independent research. So right now I'm doing the first ever study in high-functioning depression, and my team is leading that. And that's my own independent research. So I like to look at things that are being neglected. And I think that high-functioning depression is one of those things that people don't fully understand. It's not given the pedestal that it should get because it doesn't lead to dysfunction. But I, in my research, I argue that, listen, this is a public health crisis. And, you know, I I won't be able to share the findings, but I think that understanding things that resonate with the public and not just found in a textbook, right? Some of the things that you find that people in the public want to talk about are not in a textbook. Well, you know, we have to listen. We have to listen to people. Yeah. Because what good is it if we're studying something that no one cares about, that no one has questions about. And so I look at my lab as like a nice mix of pop and science, of (laughs) art and science, because I want to create protocols and research that really affects people that people actually care about. They want to open a research journal and read about it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. How exciting. 
Like, it is. That is just so badass. Like I'm, I'm obsessed. And, you know, obviously the postpartum pill was huge, huge news. And I think the first outlet I saw to cover it, there was, of course, a lot of people in the comments, a lot of anti-med people in the comments. Yeah, I would love for you to just talk a little bit about that because, I mean, obviously medication for mental health can sometimes be a very like contentious topic, but this is something that obviously a lot of women are struggling with and no one is saying, oh, you're on these pills for the rest of your life. But, (laughs) you know, the thing about my first postpartum study that I did in my lab, I remember it very clearly. I remember every patient because at the time I had just given birth to my daughter and I just remember feeling so exhausted. Like I had to be at my lab. I had this newborn at home and then I'm coming in and I'm seeing these these mothers who are just not only burnt out, but they're depressed. Yeah. And I remember just sitting with them, showing them how to pump milk, you know, because we had to, at the time for that study, pump breast milk and, and collect it to see whether or not the drug was in the, in the, in the milk. Oh, okay. But just yes. sitting with them, you know, just sitting with them and pumping milk and talking about their experiences was just refreshing. As a mother, you sometimes feel like you don't even exist, that it's all about this baby, that you should not be complaining. You know, there are, there are mothers out there who don't, who've tried to have babies and they couldn't, you know, there are people who've like miscarried, like you should be grateful. People don't understand what you physiologically go through after you give birth. It is a trauma. I always tell my patients, put it on your medical history. You know, when you're filling it out, high blood pressure, diabetes, put your pregnancies there because a pregnancy is a huge trauma. You know, you're carrying something around for like nine months and you're giving birth. And sometimes it's a major surgery. Like that is a physical and mental trauma. So I think that for a long time, mothers were just gaslit into thinking that, well, your body's made to have kids, so you shouldn't even complain. Right. And we know that that's so untrue. It's so wrong, but it's something we continue to challenge because then you have people saying, well, you shouldn't be on meds. Your meds will hurt your baby and all this nonsense that Listen, you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself first, because if you don't take care of yourself, what chances that baby has, you know, and like, right, you deserve happiness. You deserve to, you know, have a full life. You deserve to be able to get back to your, what you were doing before you had a baby. So yeah, I think the stigma there is still so heavy. Yeah. Family members, I I often have to sit with the family members and talk to them about it and why, you know, sometimes I have a partner in the room and, he, and he's like, well, my mom had five kids and like, she was fine. It's like, well, you know what? Maybe she wasn't. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe she, she wasn't. wasn't. And you just don't know. <laughs> Correct. We dig a little deeper and it's like, well, actually she slept a lot. Oh, actually my older sister took care of us. So actually, oh, maybe she did have depression, you know, like, and then you find out, well, these things weren't talked about, you know? Right. So. As we know. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And also, I want to talk about the pandemic a little bit because that's also had such a massive impact on people's mental health over the last three years. And yeah, we're seeing the lingering impact of it now. And from the work that you do with patients and the research you conduct, what are some of the ways you see the pandemic having a long-haul impact? I'm seeing a lot of depression. And even when my lab remained open throughout the pandemic, 
people would come in because they just needed to get out of the house. I don't think I've ever seen retention rates for studies the way I did during the pandemic. People were just so grateful to have something to do, mm-hmm. something to like look forward to, you know? But specifically with the pediatric populations and young girls, we're seeing high reports of anxiety and hopelessness. And around like, unfortunately, our black girls, they're having high, high rising rates of suicide. I posted recently. I know about I saw this. I saw yeah. that real. Yeah. And a lot of people in the comments, again, trying to. People, they could, because the real was so fast. They were right. like, men have the highest rates of suicide. And I said, no, 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 never said that. I never right. said men don't have the highest rate. It's rising rates. Our black girls are having high rising rates of suicide. This is something that, you know, is very, very new and very shocking. When I started training, Sometimes you would hear these things that seemed a bit stereotypical, like, oh, you know, Black people don't have depression. No, no, no. Black people have depression, <laughs> but they, like, you're, not, you're not studying it. You're not studying it. And you don't, you don't treat this population. So how do you know? You know, so we know that these rates are rising now and suicidality is a real problem. Hopelessness is a problem. And so with regards to our youth, We need to have very, very open discussions as parents, as teachers, as allies in the community and Mm -hmm. let people know that it's okay to have hopelessness. Hopelessness is actually what we're seeing everywhere. Yeah, There's nothing wrong with you. You having thoughts that you don't want to live anymore. That's what's happening. This is not just you. And there's this fear that if you talk about it, that people will then get ideas and that's not how it is. Contagion doesn't work that way. Suicide contagion <laughs> happens when you glorify suicide or someone dies and then there's a big memorial and people, you know, talk about the person and, and it's in a glorified way. That's how contagion happens. Contagion doesn't happen when you talk about, you know, what are the signs of sadness? What are the signs of depression? Making it normalized. Like, yeah, when you're really, really feeling like there's nothing left in life, you do have that thought you don't want to live anymore. Yeah. When you talk about things openly like that without the stigma, without the shame, then you could reach people and you can actually stop them before their first attempt. Yeah. Have you noticed a difference in your research between you know, young people and adults and how they've been impacted by COVID? With my research, I think what I've seen is more rates of depression for sure. And that's both in children and in adults. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because, and this is my theory, I think that we as a society haven't fully processed this trauma. It was, okay, the pandemic. Then it was all the police brutality. Then it was the uprising and with Congress. And then recently, there's all these other things, the smog in New York. Okay, fires <laughs> in Maui. It's like, well, what's next? I know we're just getting hit one after the climate change, like everything. It, it just doesn't stop. Everything. And I liken it to an ocean. When mm-hmm. you're in an ocean and you're like, okay, there's a wave, I can recover. But it, what happens when there's wave after wave after wave? You can't even catch your breath. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just seeing this collective trauma where it's just like people can't catch their breaths. And when you don't process trauma, trauma creeps in in very, very sneaky ways. Yes. I did PTSD studies for several years and just wrapped one up. And I, you know, I mentioned to you that when I traveled and I was in Egypt 
during that uprising that I didn't travel for for many years to mm-hmm. exotic places. And I didn't have that realization. I never put the two together. Yeah. But that's how trauma is. I have patients who'll say, oh, I don't even remember 2020 was a blur. Well, did you know that forgetting is a trauma response? Mm -hmm. Did you know that when your body is in fight or flight, your body buries memories so that your conscious isn't aware of the pain so that you can, you know, thrive, but then it peeks through in different ways. You'll have a panic attack. You know, you may freak out when something reminds you of the thing that terrified you. So I think that as a society, we just haven't recovered from that collective trauma. And when we process it, and we should continue processing it together and acknowledging it because then we won't ever be able to catch our breaths. Yeah, absolutely. And trauma can also kind of rear its ugly head years down the line as well, right? It might not even be that you can recognize it right now. I once had a patient several years ago who had a really hard time one month and was just like, I don't know, everything's going great. Everything's going great. I don't know why I'm feeling this way. I'm not why I'm feeling this way. So we had to do like some work. We, you know, sometimes in therapy, you'll be in therapy weekly and then you'll go away and then you'll come back. And we Mm -hmm. had to just do some intense work for that month to figure out what was happening, figure out what was happening. And it turned out that something terrible had happened years ago on that date, around that date, the person, and they just never processed it. And once we talked about it and we work through it, the symptoms resolve. And that's how trauma works. You know, our brains are designed to protect us. So if something bad happens, our conscious will bury it deep into the unconscious, the subconscious. But just because it's buried doesn't mean it's not there. Just because it's dormant doesn't mean it won't come out and affect us. And I think that that's where working with a therapist is so important. Nothing replaces that because without that relationship that that client and I had, we wouldn't have been able to to resolve it. Um, we wouldn't have been able to process it. Totally. Okay. I want to talk about this new data from the CDC's National Center for Health Statistics that was recently making headlines as it suggests that mental health disorders such as attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, or anxiety are common among school-aged children. As a psychiatrist, what are your biggest takeaways from the news and how can we begin addressing this crisis? So ADHD is a neurological condition that people have where it can impact your ability to be attentive. You have symptoms of hyperactivity, impulsivity. Some people have a combination of all of these. Some people have predominantly an attentive type versus hyperactivity type. The key is that there's so much information now and so much awareness mm-hmm. that we're seeing more diagnoses. We're seeing a lot of self-diagnoses. Some of it is correct and some of it is incorrect. <laughs> it's true. And also, you know, because ADHD travels with anxiety and depression, sometimes when you treat the depression, the ADHD symptoms get better and mm. are not as impairing. Right. Sometimes when you treat the anxiety, those symptoms go away. So Interesting. That's why we were talking about, Chrissy, how nuanced it is that you just can't go online and say, I have this, I have this, I have that, <laughs> and this, you know, and you you can't just self-diagnose because you're doing yourself an injustice or you're mm-hmm. doing your children an injustice. But I think that we're seeing a rise in the diagnoses because people are, you know, more aware. Yeah. I also think that being at home during the pandemic 
and maybe breaking from routine for some individuals, especially in a crucial part of their development, has really put some setbacks in place. And we know that, you know, some of the literature suggests that reading and and mathematics and, you know, and that type of learning has really suffered in some populations, especially in people who have a history of learning disabilities or other challenges, right? Yeah. So it's problematic because of the increase in diagnosis, we're also experiencing a shortage of medications. Right. So in a given day, my office is like calling around different pharmacies trying to find medications mm. or replacements. And yeah. the FDA, I think just, just this weekend or just last week, in conjunction with the DEA, addressed this because it is a problem. You know, these drug shortages are leaving people without their prescriptions. Mm-hmm. And the gold standard for ADHD are stimulants, they're medications. Right. So it's something that I think we need a lot more resources. Yeah. We need more medication supplies. One doctor I spoke with said that because stimulants are controlled substance, you can only make X amount. But if there's a shortage, then it's not like you can create factories and start pumping them out. You know, everything right. takes time in this space because it's a controlled substance. So, you know, the rules just, they're not made for making a whole bunch of this medication. Right. But there are things you can do to help with ADHD that are not medication-based that can support you. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the children I work with, I'll refer to organizational skills training. And this is kind of a cognitive behavioral therapy where you teach children how to put things in place to organize their day. And they'll use things like digital devices or file systems or calendars for time management, for planning, to prevent procrastination. Mm-hmm. You know, you shift routines so that you have more transition time because with ADHD, some people have a hard time with transitioning. Like they get stuck on a task and it takes a while to get to another one and then they end up being late. And so there are a lot of behavioral modification that can be done around ADHD behaviors to empower children and adults when they don't have their medication handy. And also besides stimulants, there are these other medications that are non-stimulant based that are FDA approved to help with ADHD that you can use until you get your stimulant. Another thing that, you know, is kind of controversial, but stimulant holidays. So I'll say, okay, figure out the days where you really, really need to take your stimulant and the days that you really don't need to use the organizational skills, you know, use other things because that way you can save it for the days that you really need it Yeah. until it becomes back in stock. So it's, right. we've had to become so creative. I know. I'm like, how sad though that you have to be like rationing your, you know, your, <laughs> your medicines in. It oh. is so frustrating and it's really difficult because like I said, ADHD travels with anxiety and depression. Right. Guess what? If you can't get your meds, you're going to be anxious. If you can't get work done, you're going to feel even more depressed. So it's yeah. like, it's it's a real challenge. So we really, we have to work together. I've been calling up my my other psychiatry friends, like, what are you doing? Which pharmacy is doing this? Which one's doing that? Calling across oh the state lines. Like, can you do Like, you know, like it's, you have to be creative with it. That is r- such a difficult position to be in. And, you know, and I, I assume with most medications, it's like the routine of it is also very important. Very. I'm so glad you brought that up because sometimes you're like, you want to take it at this time of the day, right. because if you know the half-life, it'll wear off at this time. And then you got to take the booster at this time. It's like, well, all that's out the window. Just take it when you got it. Right. <laughs> 
You're like, you got to just take it and <laughs> hoping for the best. <laughs> right. Well, Dr. Judith, this has been such a great and informative conversation. And I really want to thank you for joining me today. But before we wrap up, I was wondering if you have any final thoughts or advice for anyone listening right now who may be struggling or perhaps knows someone who is. Well, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. What I want to say is that, you know, if you're looking for a therapist and you are on a waiting list and you're feeling like hopeless, there are so many things you can do while you wait. Things like listening to podcasts like this one, reading self-help books, joining support groups. You know, there are a lot of support groups out there where they're peer-led. They don't replace a therapist, but you may actually help someone in that group by sharing your story and they may help you. Or they may be going about a problem a completely different way and give you this unique perspective and you can learn from each other. There are training programs. You know, I was a part of a training program. That's how I became a psychiatrist. So there are residency programs that train psychologists, psychiatrists, um, social workers. So you can be a part of that training program and, you know, you're getting a discounted rate a lot of times. So there are different avenues. There are faith-based leaders that you can talk to if, if you are particularly religious or spiritual. Like your dad. Um, yeah, like my dad. <laughs> so, you know, don't, don't give up. There are ways to support yourself. You're important and you deserve appropriate treatment and care. Really love that. Thank you again. Thank you. I want to give a huge thank you to Dr. Judith for coming on the show today and talking about the inspiring work she is doing to help people. And remember, we're also here to provide access to mental health resources and support those who need it most. For more information, visit Maybelline.com slash Brave Together. And don't forget to make sure you're subscribed to I'm Fine, You. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and this has been I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline, New York.